Nuisance. Nuisance is traditionally used to describe an activity which is harmful or annoying to others such as indecent conduct or a rubbish heap. Nuisances either affect private individuals, private nuisance, or the general public, public nuisance. The claimant can sue for most acts that interfere with their use and enjoyment of their land. In English law, whether activity was an illegal nuisance depended upon the area and whether the activity was for the benefit of the commonwealth, with richer areas subject to a greater expectation of cleanliness and quiet. The case Jones v. Powell, 1629, provides an early example, in which a person's professional papers were damaged by the vapors of a neighboring brewery. Although the outcome of this case is unclear, White Lock of the Court of the King's Bench is recorded as saying that since the water supply in area was already contaminated, the nuisance was not actionable as it is better that they should be spoiled than that the Commonwealth stand in need of good liquor. In English law, a related category of tort liability was created in the case of Rylands v. Fletcher, 1868, Strict liability was established for a dangerous escape of some hazard, including water, fire, or animals as long as the cause was not remote. In Cambridge Water Company Limited v. Eastern Counties Leather PLC, 1994, chemicals from a factory seeped through a floor into the water table, contaminating East Anglia's water reservoirs. The Rylands rule remains in use in England and Wales. In Australian law, it has been merged into negligence. Economic torts. Economic torts typically involve commercial transactions, and include tortious interference with trade or contract, fraud, injurious falsehood, and negligent misrepresentation. Negligent misrepresentation torts are distinct from contractual cases involving misrepresentation and that there is no privity of contract, these torts are likely to involve pure economic loss which has been less commonly recoverable in tort. One criterion for determining whether economic loss is recoverable is the foreseeability doctrine. The economic loss rule is highly confusing and inconsistently applied and began in 1965 from a California case involving strict liability for product defects. In 1986, the U.S. Supreme Court adopted the doctrine in East River SS Corporation v. Transamerica Delaville, Incorporation. In 2010, the Supreme Court of the U.S. State of Washington replaced the economic loss doctrine with an independent duty doctrine. Economic antitrust torts have been somewhat submerged by modern competition law. However, in the United States, private parties are permitted in certain circumstances to sue for anti-competitive practices, including under federal or state statutes or on the basis of common law tortious interference, which may be based upon the restatement, second, of tort section 766. Negligent misrepresentation as tort where no contractual privity exists was disallowed in England by Derry v. Peak. However, this position was overturned in Headley Byrne v. Heller in 1964 so that such actions were allowed if a special relationship existed between the plaintiff and defendant. United States courts and scholars paid lip service to Derry, however, scholars such as William Prosser argued that it was misinterpreted by English courts. The case of Ultramares Corporation v. Touche, 1932, limited the liability of an auditor to known identified beneficiaries of the audit and this rule was widely applied in the United States until the 1960s. The restatement, second, of torts expanded liability to foreseeable users rather than specifically identified foreseen users of the information, dramatically expanding liability and affecting professionals such as accountants, architects, attorneys, and surveyors. As of 1989, most U.S. jurisdictions follow either the Ultramares approach or the restatement approach. The tort of deceit for inducement into a contract is a tort in English law, but in practice has been replaced by actions under Misrepresentation Act 1967. In the United States, similar torts existed but have become superseded to some degree by contract law and the pure economic loss rule. Historically, and to some degree today, fraudulent, but not negligent, misrepresentation involving damages for economic loss may be awarded under the benefit of the bargain rule, 
damages identical to expectation damages in contracts, which awards the plaintiff the difference between the value represented and the actual value. Beginning with Stiles v. White, 1846, in Massachusetts, this rule spread across the country as a majority rule with the out-of-pocket damages rule as a minority rule. Although the damages under the benefit of the bargain are described as compensatory, the plaintiff is left better off than before the transaction. Since the economic loss rule would eliminate these benefits if applied strictly, there is an exception to allow the misrepresentation toward if not related to a contract. Remedies and defenses in common law jurisdictions. The remedies and defenses available in common law jurisdictions are typically similar, deriving from judicial precedent with occasional legislative intervention. Compensation by way of damages is typically the default remedy available to plaintiffs, with injunctions and specific performance being relatively rare in tort law cases. Relatively uniquely for a common law jurisdiction, Singapore's Community Disputes Resolution Act 2015, CDRA, alters the common law by codifying a statutory tort of interference with enjoyment or use of place of residence and provides for a variety of remedies beyond damages, ranging from injunctions and specific performance to court-ordered apologies. Where a court order providing for a remedy other than damages is awarded under the CDRA is violated, sections 5 to 8 of the Act require that the plaintiff apply for a special direction to be issued in order to enforce the original remedy and section 9 provides that failure to comply with a special direction is grounds for the court to issue an order excluding the tortfeasor from their residence. Aside from legislatively created remedies such as the CDRA, courts in common law jurisdictions will typically provide for damages, which, depending on jurisdiction, may include punitive damages, but judges will issue injunctions and specific performance where they deem damages not to be a sufficient remedy. Legislatures in various common law jurisdictions have curtailed the ability of judges to award punitive or other non-economic damages through the use of non-economic damages caps and other tort reform measures. Apart from proof that there was no breach of duty, in other words, that a tortious act was not committed in the first place, there are three principal defenses to tortious liability in common law jurisdictions. Consent and warning. Typically, a victim cannot hold another liable if the victim has implicitly or explicitly consented to engage in a risky activity. This is frequently summarized by the maxim volenti non fit injuria, Latin, to a willing person, no injury is done or no injury is done to a person who consents. In many cases, those engaging in risky activities will be asked to sign a waiver releasing another party from liability. For example, spectators to certain sports are assumed to accept a risk of injury, such as a hockey puck or baseball striking a member of the audience. Warnings by the defendant may also provide a defense depending upon the jurisdiction and circumstances. This issue arises, for example, in the duty of care that landowners have for guests or trespasses, known as occupier's liability. Comparative or contributory negligence, if the victim has contributed to causing their own harm through negligent or irresponsible actions, the damages may be reduced or eliminated entirely. Contributory negligence, the English case Butterfield v. Forrester, 1809, established this defense. In England, this contributory negligence became a partial defense, but in the United States, any fault by the victim completely eliminated any damages. This meant that if the plaintiff was 1% at fault, the victim would lose the entire lawsuit. This was viewed as unnecessarily harsh and therefore amended to a comparative negligence system in many states. As of 2007 contributory negligence exists in only a few states such as North Carolina and Maryland. Comparative negligence. In comparative negligence, the victim's damages are reduced according to the degree of fault. Comparative negligence has been criticized as allowing a plaintiff who is recklessly 95% negligent to recover 5% of the damages from the defendant. Economists have further criticized comparative negligence as not encouraging precaution under the calculus of negligence.
In response, many states now have a 50% rule where the plaintiff recovers nothing if the plaintiff is more than 50% responsible. Illegality, if the claimant is involved in wrongdoing at the time the alleged negligence occurred, this may extinguish or reduce the defendant's liability. The legal maxim ex torpi causa non oritur actio, Latin for no right of action arises from a despicable cause. Thus, if a burglar is verbally challenged by the property owner and sustains injury when jumping from a second-story window to escape apprehension, there is no cause of action against the property owner even though that injury would not have been sustained but for the property owner's intervention. Other Defenses and Immunities Sovereign Immunity Good Samaritan Laws, especially in jurisdictions with a statutory or common law duty to rescue. Charitable Immunity Discovery in Tort Litigation Discovery, or Disclosure a concept unique to common law jurisdictions, is a pretrial procedure in a lawsuit in which each party, through the law of civil procedure, can open-endedly demand evidence from the other party or parties by means of discovery devices such as interrogatories, requests for production of documents, requests for admissions and depositions. Discovery can be obtained from non-parties using subpoenas. When a discovery request is objected to, the requesting party may seek the assistance of the court by filing a motion to compel discovery. In tort litigation, the availability of discovery enables plaintiffs to essentially carry out a private investigation, subpoenaing records and documents from the defendant. Consequently, commentators in civil law jurisdictions regard discovery as destructive of the rule of law and as a private inquisition. Civil law countries see the underlying objectives of discovery as properly monopolized by the state in order to maintain the rule of law. The investigative objective of discovery is the prerogative of the executive branch, and insofar as discovery may be able to facilitate the creation of new rights, that is the prerogative of the legislative branch. The availability of discovery in common law jurisdictions means that plaintiffs who, in other jurisdictions, would not have sufficient evidence upon which to file a tort claim are able to do so in the hope that they will be able to obtain sufficient evidence through discovery. The primary drawbacks of this are that, on one hand, it creates the possibility that a plaintiff filing suit in good faith may not find enough evidence to succeed and incur legal expenses driven upward due to the cost of discovery, and, on the other hand, that it enables plaintiffs arguing in bad faith to initiate frivolous tort lawsuits and coerce defendants into agreeing to legal settlements and otherwise unmeritorious actions. Variation between common law jurisdictions. Among common law countries today, there are significant differences in tort law. Common law systems include United States tort law, Australian tort law, Canadian tort law, Indian tort law, and the tort law of a variety of jurisdictions in Asia and Africa. There is a more apparent split in tort law between the Commonwealth countries and the United States. Despite diverging from English common law in 1776, earlier than the other common law jurisdictions, United States tort law was influenced by English law and Blackstone's commentaries, with several state constitutions specifically providing for redress for torts in addition to reception statutes which adopted English law. However, tort law globally was viewed as relatively undeveloped by the mid-19th century. The first American treatise on torts was published in the 1860s but the subject became particularly established when Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote on the subject in the 1880s. Holmes' writings have been described as the first serious attempt in the common law world to give torts both a coherent structure and a distinctive substantive domain, although Holmes' summary of the history of torts has been critically reviewed. The 1928 U.S. case of Paulsgraf v. Long Island Railroad Company heavily influenced the British judges in the 1932 House of Lords case of Donahue v. Stevenson. The United States has since been perceived as particularly prone to filing tort lawsuits even relative to other common law countries, although this perception has been criticized and debated. 
20th century academics have identified that class actions were relatively uncommon outside of the United States, noting that the English law was less generous to the plaintiff in the following ways. Contingent fee arrangements were restricted, English judges tried more decisions and set damages rather than juries, wrongful death lawsuits were relatively restricted, punitive damages were relatively unavailable, the collateral source rule was restricted, and strict liability, such as for product liability, was relatively unavailable. The English welfare state, which provides free health care to victims of injury, may explain the lower tendency towards personal injury lawsuits in England. A similar observation has also been made with regard to Australia. While Indian tort law is generally derived from English law, there are certain differences between the two systems. Indian tort law uniquely includes remedies for constitutional torts, which are actions by the government that infringe upon rights enshrined in the Constitution, as well as a system of absolute liability for businesses engaged in hazardous activity as outlined in the rule in M.C. Meta v. Union of India. Similar to other common law jurisdictions, conduct which gives rise to a cause of action under tort law is additionally criminalized by the Indian Penal Code, which was originally enacted in 1860. As a result of the influence of its relatively early codification of criminal law, the torts of assault, battery, and false imprisonment are interpreted by Indian courts and the courts of jurisdictions that were formerly part of the British Indian Empire, for example Pakistan, Bangladesh, and British colonies in Southeast Asia which adopted the Indian Penal Code, for example Singapore, Malaysia, and Brunei, with reference to analogous crimes outlined in the Code. For instance, assault is interpreted in the context of S.351 per which the following criteria constitute assault. Making of any gesture or preparation by a person in the presence of another. Intention or knowledge of likelihood that such gesture or preparation will cause the person present to apprehend that the person making it is about to use criminal force on them. Similarly, battery is interpreted in the context of criminal force as outlined in S.350. An area of tort unique to India is the constitutional tort, a public law remedy for violations of rights, generally by agents of the state, and is implicitly premised on the strict liability principle. In practice, constitutional torts in India serve the role served by administrative courts in many civil law jurisdictions and much of the function of constitutional review in other jurisdictions, thereby functioning as a branch of administrative law rather than private law. Rather than developing principles of administrative fairness as a distinct branch of law as other common law jurisdictions have, Indian courts have thus extended tort law as it applies between private parties to address unlawful administrative and legislative action. Within Canada's common law provinces, there is currently no consistent approach to the tort of invasion of privacy. Four provinces, British Columbia, Manitoba, Newfoundland and Saskatchewan, have created a statutory tort. Ontario has recognized the existence of the tort of intrusion upon seclusion which has also been held to exist under tort law in the United States. British Columbia, on the other hand, has held that the tort does not exist in that province under the common law. Like the United Kingdom and British Columbia, but unlike Ontario and most jurisdictions in the United States, Indian tort law does not traditionally recognize a common law tort of invasion of privacy or intrusion on seclusion. Nevertheless, there is a shift in jurisprudence toward recognizing breach of confidentiality as an actionable civil wrong. Proponents of protection for privacy under Indian tort law argue that the right to privacy is implicit in Article 21 of the Constitution of India, which guarantees protections for personal liberties. Despite the lack of a tort addressing violations of privacy by private individuals, the Supreme Court recognized privacy as a constitutional right in 2017. Similarly, neither intentional infliction of emotional distress, IIED, nor negligent infliction of emotional distress, NIED, is recognized as a tort in Indian jurisprudence. 
while claims seeking damages for infliction of emotional distress were historically an accessory claim in a tort action alleging another distinct tort. The doctrine has evolved in North America into a standalone tort while English jurisprudence has evolved to typically only recognize psychiatric injuries as grounds for compensation. Indian courts, while recognizing the infliction of emotional distress regardless of intention as an actionable wrong in matrimonial disputes, typically follow the English approach, although case law from both the United Kingdom and North America is frequently employed by judges ruling on cases in which damages for mental distress are sought.